This episode is brought to you by Privacy. So for those that don't know by now, Privacy lets you buy things online using virtual cards instead of having to use your real ones, protecting your identity and bank info while you're online. Right now, new customers will automatically get 5 bucks to spend on their first purchase if you go to privacy.com slash barcode to sign up. So I can't tell you how long I was searching for a quick and easy yet secure service to protect my financial information if I was making an online purchase. And my main concern was the same one that you have, securing that payment info and where that payment info goes after you hit confirm purchase. Well, with privacy, you're in control. It puts you in the driver's seat. You know, you set the speed limit. You can put that cruise control on 55 or 105. It's your call. So before you make that next online purchase, hit up privacy.com slash barcode and get yourself an account with five bucks to spend on your first purchase. Privacy.com slash barcode. You're listening to the Barcode Podcast with your host, Chris Glandon, serving cybersecurity straight up with no chaser. Let's hit the bar and grab a drink. Yo, Chris, check it out. We got Barcode Trivia Night going on. Hope you pack some popcorn. Tonight's theme is security movies. Actually, you're late, bro. Man, I wish I knew. I actually got stuck in traffic getting over here. Well, it's coming down to the wire. Let's go check it out. Okay, gang. The answer to the last question. What was the first cinematic reference to a firewall? Was C, War Games. Again, C, War Games. All right, we have a close one here, guys. Here are the standings. In third place, we have Trojan Scum Riders with 40 points. In second place, we have Mind Hack Zombies with 55 points. And currently in first place with a staggering 75 points, Bootstrap Paradox. Hang tight, compadres. I will be right back with our final question of the night. Dude, I'm a trivia beast. I would have killed this competition. I mean, Bootstrap Paradox? You serious? (laughs) I I don't know, bro. You know these guys in their security movies. True. Well, listen, man, I need a drink. Before this last question, at least I'll go one for one. Okay, cool. I got you. Quick and easy. It's called the final answer. You're going to do one and a half ounces of white rum, ounce of maraschino liqueur, ounce of green chartreuse, and one ounce of lemon juice. Shake, strain, straight up in a cocktail glass. Perfect. All righty, crew. Here comes your last question of the evening. This one here will determine tonight's winner. In the movie Identity Theft, starring Jason Bateman, they based the character Sandy Patterson after... Gotta run, man. Here's my guy. All right, Chris. Enjoy. I'll see you all next round. John Cilio is CEO of the Cilio Group, a data security think tank that helps organizations protect the information that drives their profits. His experience includes engagements with the Pentagon, USA Today, Visa, 60 Minutes, Homeland Security, 
Anderson Cooper, Rachel Ray, Dr. Oz, and the list just goes on. A cybersecurity expert and Hall of Fame keynote speaker, John, it's an honor to have you on the show, sir. Welcome. Chris, got it. So good to be here. Thank you for uh, inviting me on. Yeah, my pleasure, man. So you at one point in your life was a, a victim of cybercrime, um, you know, to the extent that you lost a multi-million dollar business to cybercrime. You know, I'd like to get into that if you don't mind, if you could just sort of walk me through that experience and, and you know, how that happened. Yeah. You know, I was just uh, one of those people who thought it couldn't all happen to me. I, I ran a tech, actually a technology business that I'd taken over from my family, um, a, a computer company in Denver, Colorado. And I kind of had two separate cases. So the first was this kind of, at the time, you know, back in 2003, garden variety, uh, dumpster diving, a, a woman, uh, Rosemary Serrano, stole my identity out of some unshredded trash that I put out on the curb, uh, you know, the night before the, the trash people came. And this, this cybercrime ring that was running in the area called the Cash Men, who dress up like trash men, drive around your neighborhood in a garbage truck oh, and, you know, pick up the, the garbage on your your curb, which is actually not illegal because it's on public property at that point. Um, they take it back to a warehouse, filter through it for identity and, and sell it on the dark web. Well, in my case, uh, this woman, Rosemary Serrano, uh, bought herself a home using my social cross country in Boca Raton, Florida, and then uh, drained our life savings, defaulted on the loan and declared bankruptcy uh, in my name. Um, and I found out when I walked into my bank one day and security guards physically escorted me out of the bank for crimes that Rosemary had been off committing in Florida in my name. And uh, if it, you know, if it all sounds vaguely familiar from the movie Identity Thief with Jason Bateman and Melissa McCarthy, that's because that's that uh, movie was based on my my early story with ID theft. Wow. Yeah, it, it was just, you know, such a, an op uh, eye opener to the personal side of it. And at the time, I, I didn't really apply it to my the small business that I was taking over um, from my parents. And um, it, it turns out that while that was going on, while I was distracted and my, you know, my eye was kind of off the ball, so to speak, kind of like, you know, what it's been this last year with COVID, we've all been focused so heavily on surviving that, that sometimes the, the security went to the, the background. Well, in this case, I um, had taken on a, a business partner who was my best friend and my rock climbing partner, Doug, uh, and it was to start up a... Uh, kind of a, a cloud, early cloud version of accounting software. Well, it turns out that Doug was using my banking login credentials, my identity to embezzle from all of our clients, fund some seriously sick habits that he had and use my identity to cover all of his cyber crimes. So that kind of the net result of that one was that I, uh, I uh, faced a two-year criminal trial for 10 years in prison for all of these crimes that he had committed as if he were me. So it was ID theft, it was cyber crime, it was mm -hmm. insider fraud. And uh, I spent two years uh, fighting that, that jail sentence. And, uh, um, you know, I kind of saved the ending for, for the audiences that I speak with. Obviously, I give a little bit longer version of the story and all the gory details, but um, it was quite a trial that 
you know, that really demonstrated it can happen to all of us. It can happen to us personally. It can happen to our businesses. And that still affects us personally. And, you know, in this, I think the lesson for, for modern times is trust has really become our greatest vulnerability, whether it's the technology we trust, the people we trust, the insiders and so forth. That's a hundred percent true, man. And, and there are bad actors out there that are highly skilled in creating trust, especially in the digital world where you don't know exactly who you're talking to. No, with a social media profile and uh, some basic reconnaissance techniques, reconnaissance techniques, you can, you can get somebody to trust you, socially engineer them extremely quickly. And it's funny, I, I don't know what you see with the companies you work with, but such a small proportion of the organizations that I speak to and work with have actually done a good job of training their people on social engineering and the human elements of cybersecurity. Exactly. And if your employees are only focused on that from nine to five, right? They pass that compliance training. That's a check mark for the organization. But that should really extend beyond the company walls. And that awareness needs to happen on a cultural level. Agree totally. And the cultural aspect is such a secondary thought at most organizations. I mean, there are some that are building security into their culture by design, you know, just like they would into their technology. But that's that's pretty few and far between. So yeah, interesting story. After this happened to you, was it at that point you decided to zone in on security and decide to help educate others on how to protect their own identity? Yeah. So, you know, it kind of started like many of our things start, which was kind of out of fear and, and complete overwhelm. I, my wife and I, you know, we, we had lost all of it. We, you know, we'd lost our everything we had earned, we were going to have to move out of our house. We got in this kind of, you know, nasty fight. And I went to the basement and I spent three weeks in the basement writing my first book, which was on identity theft. And um, the book did kind of well, and it got me out there on the road for a book tour. And it became readily apparent that um, organizations, even back then, just with pure ID theft, you know, they needed to know about this stuff. And I was better on the stage than I would ever be, you know, inside the pages of a book. And it led to this speaking career that, you know, when the Pentagon and all this stuff, you know, that's so fun to brag about. But the point being, we all needed this. It didn't matter what kind of organization or what individual, it's universal across all of those. Absolutely. You need to deliver that message. Uh, but it's also, you know, a gift that you have to be able to deliver that message that connects with people. And, and a lot yeah. of folks don't have that. They have the knowledge, but they can't deliver that message. And I think that's what's special about, you know, what you do. Well, yeah, thank you. That, that emotional connection to me is the missing key secret ingredient, getting people to bridge from their own personal security, like losing your identity or your privacy to organizational security and what it means for the people at the end of that data. You mentioned COVID and, and sort of this pandemic era that we're in right now. And it's really caused some shifts in, in, in many things in typical workflows within organizations, within mindsets and, and strategy and how you go about things differently. And it's also affected cybersecurity spend within organizations as well. And Security now, I think, is in more or is in higher demand than it ever has been, although 
many organizations are still left with budget fatigue um, and just infrastructure spend that's happened over the past year and a half trying to get, you know, work from home environments set up properly. Right. I'm curious, in your opinion, could you talk to me a little bit about how to sell better? And and I'm thinking in terms of selling from the perspective of CISOs who are looking to sell better to convince their board and executives of a cybersecurity initiative. And then also from the product solution sales reps who are looking to get a CISO to listen to them, to understand the value of their product. Yeah, this is probably my favorite part of of um, this topic because I'm not overly technical. And by the way, neither are the the CEOs or even sometimes uh, the CISOs. You know, they're they're coming from a business management type background in some cases. And I sit in on these board meetings and and advise at these board meetings where the the technical people are presenting the case for this. They're trying to present a business case, but what they're presenting is a data case or a, a, a uh, a technological IT case. And really what it all comes down to is what both you and I do. You do it on your podcasts. I do it on the stage. And that is tell a story. And um, so that, you know, the, the particular model that I teach, whether it's to a, uh, a security person or an IT person that needs to sell upwards, hey, here's why we need budget. Here's why this newest threat is something we have to address. Or if they sell downwards, um, which means they have to train the people below them and get them to engage and care about it, or to the product sales rep who is, you know, repping um, endpoint software or insider detection software, whatever it might be, utilizing story uh, is is so important. I mean, think about it. Since the beginning of time, story has followed the basic same framework. And that framework is understood by everybody in your audience. And it doesn't matter who the audience is, is, is because we've all seen a movie, we've read a book, an article, and it follows this framework. You have a hero of some sort who has something of high value that's at stake, but it lives in a risky setting of some forth. And that allows an adversary of some some type to attack. And in general, that leads in the story to a defeat. Now, it's that point in the story that a wise guide comes along. They share an action plan. And that action plan leads to victory. That is how, from Homer through current times, that is the basic framework of a story. I mean, if you take a look at you know, at Rocky three, which is the quintessential, uh, story storyline. It follows that perfectly. You've got Rocky Balboa who has got something at stake, which is the heavyweight title in, uh, in Rocky three, but he's living in a setting where he has, he's grown soft. He's not no longer, uh, practicing like he used to. That allows Clubber Lang, Mr. T, you'll remember, to, you know, intimidate him verbally and on the ropes to the point where Rocky is defeated. That's the point at which Apollo Creed, his former enemy, comes into the picture as his coach. They form an action plan. We all remember it. It's Eye of the Tiger. They're going to work as hard as when Rocky defeated Apollo, and that leads to victory. So that overall structure, it's kind of a nine-point structure that, by the way, you can structure 
every single cybersecurity initiative by. And when you do it in that, that way, it's super easy for people to conceptualize and remember. But here's the problem. Most organizations jump into the story at the defeat at the sixth stage or in the, the end of the second act. So they have a defeat, like let's say colonial, they get hit by ransomware. And then we find out all of the known vulnerabilities and issues that they could have solved to not have this problem. Well, if you move the defeat and the guide and the action plan to the start of the story and you, you tell it in such a way, for example, if you're the CISO and you're, you're looking for budget and you talk about the defeat of uh, some sort of analogous company. So a company like yours that has been hit by ransomware, you know, if you're a financial company, maybe it's CNA financial and the ransom there was that they paid was 40 million. If you're a hardware company, you use Apple, the ransom there was 50 million. So you're giving a defeat, but it's not your defeat. You've moved that to the start in the story position. And then you move through the hero is not the data. Most organizations are looking at the the uh, most IT and security people look at the data as what they're trying to save. It's actually business outcomes that they're trying to to get at. And what's at stake are these activities that that lead them to these outcomes. So you're kind of rearranging the story. The the big point here is it's a victory narrative. You're going from defeat at one end through an arc that you're showing in a very clear pattern what the what the plan is to a victory. And that kind of overarching two-step process is what executives, employees, everybody at every level, non-technical can identify with. I love that you shared that. And it seems like a very proven approach. And I love the Rocky comparison on, on many levels. <laughs> Number one, I'm, I'm Philly. So, you know, yeah. that's one movie that I can relate to. And then uh, second, you know, next time I walk into a boardroom, I'm, I'm playing that the, the eye of the tiger as my walking music just to get me pumped up. No doubt. <laughs> best, <laughs> best pump up ever. Right. <laughs> right. Get you in the right mindset. No, that that does make sense, though. You you kind of lay it out like a movie plot and and that really gets people thinking versus, you know, I need X amount of dollars for X product. Yeah, and it's really a it's a very effective way to break down any threat, too. I mean, it's a you know, it's not just powerful from the story side, it's powerful from the analysis side and forces you to look at, hey, what is our setting? Well, the setting recently has changed from the fortress moat model. You know, we have kept all the data in the castle and surrounded it with all kinds of security. And then we had COVID and we all went remote and now it's the, you know, dispersed kingdom model or whatever you want to call it. And okay, I need to take a look at the setting that we're, that this threat exists in and who is the adversary? You know, is it Russia? Is it ransomware? Is it whatever? Mm-hmm. And, and it just is a very orderly way to look through every step of the, the cyber process. Yeah. How important is it that a CISO or executive does have technical acumen and 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 what would you think to to what degree is it is it good to have a technical background and understanding some of that terminology or do you think that the understanding of leadership understanding of strategy is more important you know i think it's a bit of both um Ultimately, you're, you have this organization for most organizations because you're trying to make a profit or, or deliver some sort of a service. So 
in the end, if you don't have a business perspective, a holistic perspective on, hey, this, this is about the bottom line. That means we have to balance security with convenience, with deliverability. So it's both. But here's what I've learned. The best security professionals at a high level that I know started one way or the other. So they started in business and they got more technical or they started technically and they got more business background, but they had a curiosity about the other side of the equation. And when I'm in, you know, speaking with a a room full of business executives, I'm giving them a framework and a way of thinking that lets them have the conversation without thinking that they have to know everything. And that comes down to what are the right questions to ask? You know, what do we need to ask about, uh, you know, our incident response plan? What what does that mean? What are we prepared for? What is zero trust architecture? Give me an overview. Give me a metaphor for zero trust so that I understand it and can ask the right questions. But in terms of understanding the nitty gritty, to me, if, you know, if you're on a staff with others beneath you, that is, that's something that you have other people um, that, that they do the deep dive on that. At smaller companies, of course, it tends to be one person. Agreed. How would you advise those in leadership positions to stay fresh on emerging technology and emerging threats so they are still informed? Well, the, the self-serving answer is to, you know, bring me in for a speech and <laughs> yes. once a year have me give you the, the update or, or whatever. And, sure. um, but the, you know, the, the more generous answer is I would read at a high level. So I've got four or five sources that, that even I go to that I trust, right? Since trust is such a big deal that don't, um, that don't over-dramatize the threats they just analyze them. So, you know, even something like uh, the Wall Street Journal cybersecurity newsletter, the um, Washington Post has the, uh, you know, a threat newsletter that goes out. Those type of things to keep on top of, oh my gosh, JBS, the meatpacking company just paid 11 million ransom and here's what they didn't do. Or Colonial Pipeline uh, paid 4.4 million all because of a single bad password that wasn't caught, that wasn't decommissioned after somebody left the company. You know, that level to me is is what I would do. I probably spend two to three hours a day myself reading and keeping up. But for for leadership, not this isn't for the IT people who are constantly doing coursework and so forth. But for the leadership level, I would say, you know, once a week going through and and reading top level those type of issues and then frankly going to their security people and talking to them about the threat you know what what are we doing about supply chain do we have solar winds installed i mean the the questions don't have to be sophisticated to be effective to get the people beneath to take a look at that it's hard to escape that as well these ransomware attacks are you know they're hitting mainstream news now There's really no way to miss it. And those are things that you need to think about when you go back to your organization. Are these things that we have in place? Could we be next? Absolutely. And I think what a lot of corporations have seen as a byproduct of COVID is I better get involved. I better get my fingers into this, get my hands a little dirty, understand what's going on. Because as we move to a more remote world, more virtual, more online world, uh, you know, putting stuff in the cloud, using devices, allowing devices into the organization, 
partnering with vendors online, all of those things, you better understand it at, at an executive level or you're going to have your, you know, you're, you're going to get eaten. A hundred percent. So let's, uh, I want to stay on the topic of trust for a moment. And uh, you mentioned zero trust, which is, uh, you know, very buzzword. Like everyone likes to mm-hmm. throw the word zero trust out there. And there's a lot of confusion around the term. I think it gets overused in situations where it's not relevant. Um, what is your take on the term zero trust and then also on the concept of zero trust? Yeah. So the, the term itself to me is cultural suicide. Mm. Um, when you, when you inside of an organization promote the fact that we're going to have zero trust, your people think that you don't trust them, that you won't trust them, that you're going to be big brother looking over their shoulder, monitoring everything that they do. And so what we found, what they do is they, they, use shadow computing. They send stuff to themselves on a different computer. They uh, plug a USB device in. They put it in their Dropbox and pick it up elsewhere. They don't want you watching everything. And then what you do, what the tech people do is, oh my God, they're abusing this and they lock down further. And just by the term zero trust, you have built in a lack of trust inside of the organization. And I have seen this happen in person that, you know, the, the security people get all excited about introducing zero trust architecture and it completely destroys the culture of security that they have built. So a couple things I'll, I'll talk in a second about how I'd replace that with the concept of deep trust, which is, is my own concept. But first you got to know zero trust You know, oftentimes it's seen as a product, like you can buy this off the shelf. No way. This is a strategy. This is a quilt work of all kinds of people, processes, technology, oversight, and so forth. It is not something you buy off the shelf. So if a vendor says, um, you know, uh, here's the product that you need, rather than asking, what data do you want to protect? You know that, you know, you're you're getting a line of bull. Zero yep. trust doesn't make a system trusted. It's not about that. It's it's not that the system is trusted. It's about constantly re-verifying, you know, people. And I'll, I'll give my definition of deep trust in a second. Um, and it's not a silver bullet. It's being sold now as like the, the cure-all Rosetta Stone. And it's like many other things, which is the criminals will find ways around zero trust. They always find a way around whatever we build. So, so think of it as a dynamic, organic process, not as something you do all at once. It's an incremental, phase it in over time, start with your low-risk data first because you actually have a lot to learn before you do this to the crown jewels and, and you know build it up from the bottom. And here's, here's how I define deep trust. It's the taking all of the steps that you need in order for people to trust that the data is safe, to trust it as a corporate unit. So you're defining who you trust, individual users, with just the right amount of access to the crown jewels, the prioritized top business outcome data systems and so forth, the crown jewels using only approved devices under the right conditions, is this person still employed? Are they uh, in the same job? Did they get more access or less? The right conditions with consistent 
oversight. So that's something that's not included in most definitions of, of zero trust, mm-hmm. consistent oversight to achieve a stakes-based outcome while be- building defeat ready resiliency into the plan. So those three last ones, oversight, outcome, and resiliency are often left off of the deep trust. And here's where that fails. A lot of the crime that we're seeing now is insider in nature. It's somebody who has gotten into the business. Well, just take my example. Doug, my business partner, had access. So we trusted him. He had access. He knew what the crown jewels were. He he could work on any device he wanted because he was a co-owner under any condition at home, at work, on the road. So none of those, that's zero trust right there. None of those would have stopped my case. The consistent oversight absolutely would have done that. That's where I failed was taking a look at what data was coming and going and how it was working. And we did not have that in place. And we certainly didn't have a resiliency plan in place to say what happens if this data goes missing. So that that concept of, hey, we're going to take a look, a very um, defined look at what data goes to who and how it's used. And then we're going to have some oversight and some backup plans. That to me is how you build deep trust. And it is not an overnight purchase. Copyright that. Deep trust. Yeah. I love that. It's a con- you know control stack, but you also have that oversight that's crucial for sure. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, I can't tell you the number of meetings I sit in, you know, when I'm advising clients and they're thinking of going to this and the the vendors at the table and even the the security team internal have been convinced that two-factor authentication and you know identity management are the same as zero trust. Right. And they're not. They're one eighth of this formula that I've put through that's a really important part, but it doesn't do anything if you don't have the person that configures it right for the correct person inside of the organization on the data that you actually want to protect, not the marketing data that you don't care if it's out there on devices that are, you know, approved. I mean, you can see those, those layers as you talk about them that so often get skipped just because people want a simple answer. Yeah. I guess you would say it's a framework versus a solution. Exactly. Got it. So John, what's next for you? I know we're sort of in the last phase of the pandemic. Um, Do you have any upcoming speaking engagements or events that, that we should be aware of? Oh gosh, I have got, uh, I just finished uh, the Eastern Iowa security conference in uh, Cedar Rapids, which was awesome. Nice. I, I head to, uh, to Amazon shortly. I've got everything from the million dollar uh, round table, which is a, you know, top financial performers. Most of my events are closed events because we're talking about very, confidential specific stuff. So, you know, even when it's 5,000 people in Vegas or, you know, five people sitting around a boardroom table, it's not something that are, are open. I work with individual associations, organizations, governmental entities, and so forth. Um, and, you know, what I do individually is I run retreats up in my, uh, a little spot that I've got in, uh, in Breckenridge, Colorado, up in Summit County. And I run specifically retreats for um, burned out teams. And Mm. in cybersecurity, there is so much burnout that that's where a ton of the mistakes are happening because the, uh, 
you know, the security team has been working for the last 18 months to go to work from home. And now they're being asked to go to hybrid, which is even more complex. And the team needs a break. They need to learn to slow down, to refocus and doing those small type events for, for companies and for groups of CISOs and so forth. That is what I love because we get to go deep. We get to take a deep breath. We get to fly fish or ski or, or relax and get some work done. That's really, really motivating for me. How about uh, uh, craft cocktails? Is that part of that retreat as well? Because if so, I might need to fly out there. Man, you you know my weakness there. So yeah, mixing craft <laughs> cocktails and, and then drinking them is is one of my great hobbies. I just, I love that. So what a perfect, you know, barcode podcast, what a perfect place for us to meet. <laughs> Absolutely, man. What are your, uh, your favorites? What are your, your go-tos lately? So I'm a, I'm a bourbon guy at heart. That's, that's like where my center is. So Same things here. like uh, really interesting, but subtle takes on old fashions, like um, one, one that I made up and I'm sure every one of these exists elsewhere. I, I call the London foggy, which if you've ever had a London fog at Starbucks, you know, it's, it's Earl gray tea. So I just do an Earl gray latte old fashioned that, um, I just, I love, or I'll do one with, you know, chai tea or just subtle little flavors that you add into a, a, a drink that's already killer good. So you're sort of a mixologist on the side too, then. Yeah, you bet. <laughs> nice. Now, are these ice beverages? These are always iced. Well, okay. yeah, mostly iced. Sometimes I do. You know, I live in Colorado. It gets cold. So I do a lot of <laughs> coffee and, okay. and hot chocolate beverages. Uh, I do umbrella drinks in the summer. So there really, I'll do anything. I'll take anybody's good recipe and tinker with it. There you go, man. I know What's your favorite? I go straight bourbon. And... I'd say Blanton's is still my number one choice. You know, I don't go to top shelf because I don't see the need to. I'll typically tap out at like a $60 bottle. And to be honest with you, a $60 bottle of, say, Woodford Reserve Double Oak is just as good as the really high-end ones. So at my last retreat of... So this was um, Cyber Leaders who also loved bourbon and mountain biking. So it was a very specific retreat. And um, at that retreat, I had six bourbons that ranged from $20 a bottle. It was like Maker's Mark mm-hmm. to $180 a bottle. And they tasted them all. We had a tasting and rated them. And not one person could pick the top dollar one. And over half of them picked closer to like two thirds picked the bottom two as their favorites when it was a blind taste testing. So it's so interesting. I think, you know, branding and, and status has a lot to do with it, but, but uh, I agree with you that over 60 bucks, you know, a good bottle of like angels envy, which is aged in pork tasks. And I I love it for that little finish that it's got like beyond that, I I have no capability to tell. And, And sometimes I pick the $15 bourbon. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I just got into peanut butter whiskey. I don't know if you've had that yet. Yeah, there's one out there called Screwball. All right. And uh, Screwball is phenomenal. It tastes like liquid peanut butter. Oh, my God. I got to try that. No, I love PB&J sandwiches. Oh, well, then what you do is you take, take Screwball, 
and you put a splash of cranberry in and it's a it's a peanut butter and jelly oh my god all right that's tonight's drink (laughs) there you go (laughs) and then how about venues you're out in the colorado area you know it's um but you go everywhere you go you travel like you mentioned speaking engagements all over the world so you know where have you landed that had a really cool and unique bar and and could you describe it for us Oh God, every, every place I go has a great joint, but you have to ask locals, like you can't find it generally in the books because then it's, you know, just touristy. So in Denver, um, the one that is like, you got to go to when you come is death and co. And it's a couple of guys. uh, I think they started in New York. They came to Denver. They invent all of these drinks. They've got books on it. Um, and you just ask the bartender for like, fix me your, your specialty and she'll, you know, she'll whip you up something. And then, you know, I just love international pub scenes because they're part of the culture. Unlike here where you kind of go to drink or to eat there, you go to meet. So tiny town in Dunedin, New Zealand has a place that it used to be called the Albert arms. It's now called the bog, but you know, they got Irish music playing in the background. They've got only three or four beers on tap, a couple of uh, whiskeys, and you know you don't have a ton of selection, but you know everybody, and they they welcome you. Um, and probably any place in Europe, you know, you you yeah. go to Ravello, Italy, and you're having an apérol. I don't even like, you know, a spritz, and yet you're sitting in that setting and having what they're drinking, and it's just such a an amazing life experience. It's almost more. You know, it's it's not as much about the drink as it is about the life experience. So if you go somewhere you don't know, ask the locals. Ask the locals. God, yes. Yeah. Very cool, man. Well, it's last call here. So do you have time for one more? Yeah, absolutely. So if you decided to open up a cybersecurity themed bar, what would the <laughs> name be? <laughs> and what would your signature drink be called? Oh my God. Uh, okay. Cybersecurity themed bar. Um, well, there's this place in Portsmouth, England that is called the Jolly Taxpayer that I just think is one of the greatest, you know, they have such great pub names. They, they don't take themselves too seriously. So I'd probably make it something like, like the Jolly Honeypot or something <laughs> where, you know, so it's got a little, little tinge of of cyber, you know, it's kind of where everyone is welcome, but the evil never leave or something like that. <laughs> yes. Yes. I love that. And and it's a honeypot. So you got to make it in a way where someone's walking by, they get trapped. They get trapped. Exactly. <laughs> How about a drink? You know, if it, if it was cyber themed bar, I'd go for something that was a tribute to all of the, um, all of the people out there who work so hard to protect us, kind of the, you know, the white hats, the security people, I think they get um, underrepresented, under uh, celebrated. So maybe it'd be like the, the toasted white hat or something. It'd be, you know, three parts coffee because these people have to stay awake at all hours. It'd be one part Ferretti biscotti liqueur to keep them happy while they're doing the job. And then, you know, a little cap of toasted marshmallows, on the top to, uh, you know, as a, to pay homage to all these white hats that do so much for us. Not only tastes good, also functional. <laughs> you bet. <laughs> Love it. How can our listeners connect with you online? Do you have a, uh, your, your social media footprint on you on LinkedIn? 
Twitter? How can, how can our listeners reach out? Yeah. So, you know, most basic is just my website, which is my last name, Cilio, S-I-L-E-O.com. Um, and then I'm on all the platforms. Well, I'm on Facebook, LinkedIn. I'm not much of a Instagram user or Snapchat, but Facebook, uh, if you just, you know, put in my name, you'll, you'll see me there. LinkedIn is probably what I do uh, uh, most aggressively. That's where I connect with clients and future clients. So that's a great place. If, um, you know, let me know, jot me a note because I get a, a decent number of requests. Jot me a note that you heard me on Barcode Podcast and uh, I'll connect with you. And uh, um, you can also just Google me and find all those different sources. It's They come up pretty high. Cool, man. I'll get the links on the site as well. So, John, thanks, man. You take care. Be safe. Uh, it's a pleasure. Cheers. Barcode patrons, if you like this episode and would like to support the podcast, rate us on Apple Podcasts and visit our Patreon site, patreon.com slash barcode podcast. If you're interested in sponsoring the show, check out the barcodepodcast.com slash sponsor. Cheers. Unfortunately, it's time to shut the bar down for this episode. Thanks for stopping in. See you next time. We'll save you a seat. Be sure to check us out at thebarcodepodcast.com.